Well, this morning we want to continue our study of the book of Acts. We'll be starting with Acts chapter 15, verse 30, going to chapter 16, verse 10. Uh, the topic or the title today is Paul's journey to Philippi. The first council of the Ecclesia concluded in Acts 15. The questions seemed to be resolved. And the questions were largely, were the Gentiles to be included in the Ecclesia? And if so, on what basis would they have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses? Well, the, the council concluded that they didn't have to be circumcised or obey the law of Moses, but they did issue four stipulations. The, the Gentiles needed to abstain from food offered to idols, strangled meat, blood, and sexual immorality. Perhaps these were things that the Jews were refraining from, and so they assumed that the Gentiles needed to do the same thing. Uh, it's hard to know exactly why they did this, but this was not really the final gospel, the final word on the gospel. Ultimately, these stipulations uh, would be removed, and we would get uh, a complete and definitive gospel. And that was probably most clearly articulated by the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, which I will get to in this teaching here. So there's a transition here from this uh, preliminary ruling of the council that's, that turns out to be not fully correct and ultimately a what we believe is a fully correct gospel. And that incremental or gradual process is a picture for us because many times in making paradigm shifts, we need to be willing to take steps. Uh, incrementalism and or gradualism, it's sometimes called. Uh, this means taking small steps, moving towards some objective. And that can be used for good or evil. And of course, hopefully in Christianity, we're using it for good, moving, moving toward more and more complete alignment with God. So this is the story of this particular passage is this is a step. This records a step that's being made here in the understanding of the message. What is the message of salvation? What is the message of the gospel of the kingdom? What is the word of God that's trying to be declared by the first church and that would be pivotal now in building the ecclesia in the years ahead? So let's go ahead and uh, read here Acts chapter 15, verses 30 through 35, the first section. There are four sections here that we will go through. So this is the first one. And I've titled this section, Return to Antioch. So you recall that in the prior verses, uh, the, the first, first council had come to a conclusion on how to respond to the Gentile question. Were they gonna be admitted into the ecclesia? Were they gonna be saved? And if so, would they have to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses? The answer was no. And the, basically, they were admitted the same, on the same basis as the Gentile, the Jews rather, and the Gentiles would be asked to obey these stipulations about not eating food offered to idol or food that had been strangled or blood or sexual immorality. So they wrote this out in an epistle. They gave it to Paul and Barnabas and sent two witnesses, Judas and Silas, with them and some others. And they all sent them back to Antioch. Now, Antioch had become, by this time, kind of the center of, of this evangelistic activity that was going on that Paul and Barnabas had started in chapter 13. 
So the, while Jerusalem was still the seat of the original apostles where, where they lived, but the center of activity had shifted to Antioch. So the, the delegation goes from Jerusalem with the epistle, with the, the Paul and uh, Judas and Silas to testify verbally to the contents of the epistle. So now they're returning to Antioch. So verse 30 says this. So they, that is Paul, Barnabas, Judas, Silas, and others, were sent off. They were sent off from Jerusalem. Notice that they, they being sent out means they were commissioned. That's always a great way to go. And any assignment is to be commissioned to do it. Father figures sending you out. That's a much more secure, safe, and wise way to live. So they sent off. They were sent off and went down to Antioch. And after gathering the assembly, and this word assembly here is the word, you may have heard the word synagogue. A synagogue was an assembly. It's really a gathering of people around a common purpose. And they delivered the letter, the epistle. That's the word that epistole is the word that's used there. And when they read it, that is they, the assembly, rejoiced because of its encouragement. Both Judas and Silas, who were also products, the prophets themselves, encouraged the brothers and sisters and strengthened. That is, they confirmed them with a long message. Now, in today's time, we don't think of a long message being a confirming thing necessarily. But uh, in those days, uh, one, of the, one of the things that they prided themselves on was the culturally was they would listen to long speeches. In fact, uh, rhetoric was a tool of entertainment. So they honored people that could deliver great rhetoric, deliver great talks. So uh, today we, we honor things like TED Talks, which are really short talks. We don't honor people that can deliver a great unified message uh, that may take you know 30 minutes or an hour or two hours. Well, they did back then. So there's this long message, and it literally means many words. Many words were used to confirm, and I'm sure that the details of the debate and discussion at the church council were revealed, and the reasoning they went through to come to the conclusion that they did, all of that was probably laid out to the people, and it was very affirming, very confirming to them. So after spending some time there, and we don't know how much time that was, whether it's days, weeks, or months. It's really not totally clear. Uh, they were sent back. In other words, the ones that returned to Jerusalem, they were sent back to Jerusalem. They didn't just go. Again, the, the commissioning aspect of this comes into play. These people are really functioning in a very interdependent way that we don't do. It's foreign to us. We don't think about being sent someplace. We just decide we're going to go and go as if we have the autonomy to do that, uh, that's probably gotten a number of us in, in a lot of trouble. And we maybe we got into trouble, but we didn't understand how we got into trouble or why we got into trouble. Well, the reason may have been you just went. You weren't really sent. So they were sent back in peace by the brothers and sisters in Antioch to those who had sent them from Jerusalem. But, Paul, but Silas decided to stay there. Now, you see, I've got that in parenthesis because there's some debate about that text. Clearly, Silas did stay, but whether or not that particular verse is actually in the original text is not totally clear. Verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas, along with many others, remained in Antioch. And the word here that uh, for others is the word others of a different kind. 
there's actually two words that could have been used here. One would have been others of the same kind, and this one was others of a different kind. So the stress here is on, is on the fact that with Paul and Barnabas, there was a variety of people, perhaps varieties of giftings, varieties of perspectives and understandings about Christ. And so they were there teaching and proclaiming the word of the Lord. And so interesting, it, it doesn't say the words of the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. It's it, The word is a summary for the writings of Scripture. It's a summary for the prophetic utterances from God. And we use that even today. We'll talk about Scripture being the word. Uh, so we use the same vernacular and terminology today. Well, that's what they were doing. They They saw the message of truth from God as an integrated whole. So it was the word. And so that's what they were doing. Paul and Barnabas and others were teaching, and teaching is when you're explaining and instructing, and proclaiming is when you're introducing. You're introducing the word, and then you're unpacking it, you're explaining it, you're training, instructing, guiding, directing, holding people accountable, all those things. So they were truly discipling in a profound way there in Antioch. Going on now to verse uh, 36. Now there's a conflict. Um, it's so good that we see the reality of the humanness of Paul and Barnabas. It's sometimes hard for us to believe that how human they are, but they were very human. And they had issues just like we do today. Many times we get into conflict with people, we, we get frustrated and we get irritated, even among those who profess to be Christians. Well, here are two of the closest people, Barnabas being the father figure, Paul being the son, Barnabas had done so much to protect uh, Paul through his journey. By this time, Paul has probably been in the Lord about 20 years. And when Paul came to Christ, remember, he had been a vicious opposer of Christ. He had been seeking to persecute and lock up the Christians. And when he all of a sudden switches sides, well, the Jews, you know, viewed him as a traitor. and those who knew the knew the Lord viewed him with skepticism about his profession of faith in Christ. And so he was a man without a friend. There wasn't, there weren't anybody that really wanted to take up for him except Barnabas somewhere along the road between his Paul being intercepted by Christ and probably fit within the first 15 years somewhere. He met Barnabas because we know he was in Damascus for three years and then he was went for away for a while and came back and it was 14 years and he went back to Jerusalem. So that's that's what scripture guides us into. So for at least the first 14, 15 years of his life as a Christian, uh, he was largely trying to discern what all this meant. And he was under the care of Barnabas to some degree for a period. When he went to Jerusalem, 14 years later, Barnabas goes with him and vouches for him. And that's the only way that the Christian leaders would accept him. Of course, the Jews are still angry at him and view him as a traitor, so they're trying to kill him. So at that point, the Jews become such a threat that Barnabas takes Paul to the coast and ships him back home. And Paul begins his silent years. And those silent years went on who knows, maybe a decade. 
it's hard to know exactly how long they went on. We don't have the details. But Saul is at there. Paul of Tarsus is in Tarsus, making tents, living with his family, not knowing what's going to happen. And the one that comes to re-engage him is Barnabas. Barnabas comes to get him, returns him, you know, into the work of teaching and proclaiming the message, the word of God. It brings him to Antioch. Antioch, by that time, is becoming the hotbed, becoming the place where the Holy Spirit's working the most. So he does re-engage. So Barnabas is near and dear to Paul. They're close. So here they are now. They're going to have a conflict. After some time, that is some days, had passed, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the brothers and sisters in every town where we have preached, that is, kata angelio, now, that is not exactly the same word that's used in other places. It's a similar word. And preach the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. So we're going to check on our brothers and sisters. Now, Barnabas wanted to take along John Mark. But Paul insisted that they should not take along this man who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone on with them in the work. So interesting, he doesn't call it ministry like we would. He calls it work. I think that's a better way to think about it. Uh, I appreciate the fact when we recognize that what ministry really is means to execute the commands of Christ. We should do that in everything we do. We should be always executing the commands of Christ. So everything in life is, is diakonia. That's the word that's translated ministry commonly in the English language. But we've distorted ministry and elevated and Greek dualism has kicked in. And so we still propagate that error. It's very common in Christian circles today to think that way. So personally, I try not to use the word ministry. I think it's so distorted. And I don't like to work to use the word church because I think it's so distorted. So I'll use the word ecclesia. And I'd rather talk about whatever I do is work. You know, because that's the word that actually is used here in the New Testament to describe what we do and everything we should be done as unto the Lord. So Paul, John Mark had been with Paul and Barnabas on the first journey. They had gone through Cyprus together. When they, when they started going north, they went across a short channel uh, in the Mediterranean to get to uh, Syria and Cilicia. And at that point in the, in, the area, in the area of Pamphylia, John Mark decides to go back to Jerusalem, which is where his mother lived. And so he leaves them. So uh, Paul clearly was not happy with that. And so now when they're thinking about going back to visit the people they'd seen, well, John Mark had not been with them for a good part of the trip. And I think arguably maybe the major part of the trip. He had been with them perhaps for only a small part of the trip. And Paul didn't want to take him. No, he doesn't know the people. He doesn't know our relationships. He doesn't know what happened. Uh, no. So they had a sharp disagreement. So they parted company. They separated. And Barnabas took Mark with him. They sailed off to Cyprus. Now, remember, Barnabas was from Cyprus. So he went. He was going home and taking John Mark with him. John Mark, by the way, is his cousin. So that's the reason he's so close with John Mark. But Paul chose Silas and departed and after being commended, this is another word for commissioned, they were commended by the brothers and sisters to the grace of God. In other words, they just didn't go 
again, you see them looking to the community to confirm they're supposed to go. And so that's what happens. They go out with this co co uh, commendation from the community and they travel through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. And undoubtedly what they were doing was sharing the results uh, of the of the first church council, reading the letter and explaining how the how the council came to that decision. So they start on their journey. So the first place they go to is they go back to Derby and Lystra. Now you maybe remember those are two very uh, pivot points in their prior journey. Derby they had a lot of fruit. Lystra they had a lot of opposition. That's where Paul was stoned and left for dead. But he wasn't dead, and that's where where Paul and Barnabas were were misunderstood by the people. You see, largely the people in Lystra were biblically illiterate, so they were their worldview was uh, driven by Roman thinking. So they assumed that Paul and Barnabas were gods. Uh, you know, they viewed uh, Paul as as Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And Barnabas is Zeus because he was kind of the senior leader. Obviously, Barnabas being the elder one, the elder one would be the leader. And so they were attributing the supernatural work that Paul and Barnabas did there in healing a man to their role or status as being gods. And Paul and Barnabas run into the crowd and say, no, 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 we are not gods. We're human beings just like you. And we're here to testify to the real creator tell you about him. And so they use general revelation as a way to respond to the biblically illiterate people, which is a clue for us. This is how we should deal with the biblically illiterate people is through general revelation and bringing them to Christ that way. And this is the first time in, in, the, in the book of Acts we see this. We'll see it again in Acts 17 when Paul's in Athens, but it'll be the same strategy there. So they go back to these cities of Derby and Lystra, and they're strengthening the people there. And while they're there, they run into a man named Timothy. There was a disciple named Timothy, the son of a believing Jewish woman, but his father was a Greek. The brothers and sisters at Lystra and Iconium spoke highly of him. Now, this word spoke highly is the word martuo. Now, martuo is, the, is translated in other places as witness or testimony. And of course, we hear the English word martyr. A martyr is someone who is so committed to a cause, he's willing to die for it. Well, I think that is the implication. And you see the first martuos were the original apostles. And Acts 1.8 tells us that Jesus commissioned them to be his martuos relative to his resurrection. That was the thing that he, he asked them to do because they were eyewitnesses of his resurrection. They could testify we have seen him. So their testimony was important to the establishment and propagation of the truth that Jesus was Lord in Christ, which is the foundation of the Christian church. So here we have Timothy who people are testifying of him that he is a godly person, a faithful disciple. So Paul listens to that, and he wanted Timothy to join his traveling party. But there are Judaizers there. The Judaizers are there that have, are ones who have not accepted the church council's declaration. The declaration of the church council was for the Gentiles to be part of the ecclesia, 
they can be, and they do not have to be circumcised or obey the law of Moses. They do not have to do that, but we have these four stipulations. So this is the backdrop. Paul knows that's the, the ruling of the council, but yet he does something very puzzling here, very strange, which speaks of how incrementalism works. Incrementalism, when you're going from one paradigm to another, it's not always smooth and easy. There are bumps, there's confusion, there's a bit of chaos. So there's a bit of chaos here. Paul basically wants Timothy to go with them, but these Judaizers are there, so he took Timothy and had him circumcised. Wow, why did you do that, Paul? It wasn't necessary, but yet Paul did it. Clearly is some kind of accommodation because everybody knew that Timothy's father was a Greek. So then as they traveled the towns, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to observe. And yet Paul wasn't fully observant of those decisions himself. There was, Paul on some level was being hypocritical. It's like, wow, Paul, what are you doing? Now, Scripture doesn't show tell us if anybody rebuked Paul or challenged Paul. Maybe Paul just had some personal remorse later as he reflected on this. In any case, this is the description of what happened, and it just shows us of how difficult incrementalism can be. Even when you know the answer and know what you should do, the pressure to revert back to prior beliefs and practices can be enormous and we can all make mistakes. And I would say here, Paul made a mistake. And we'll talk more about that here in a few minutes. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Now let's go on as Paul, as Timothy joins the traveling party. And now they're gonna go on and, and begin to go into some new areas. We have a vision here for Macedonia. Now we're in Acts 16. Uh, verses six through 10. Uh, it says here that they were, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. Now, Phrygia and Galatia are, are around Iconium, that area. They're north and west. But here it says that they had been forbidden, and the word is hindered. We don't know how that happened, but the Holy Spirit, some way or another, would not allow them to speak the word. Isn't that interesting? that the Holy Spirit would say, no, you cannot speak the word there. You would think speaking the word anytime, anywhere would be great. But no, God has timing as to when and who will speak where. Going on, and they came to Mycenae. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, the spirit of Jesus appears to be another word for the Holy Spirit. There's also, you'll find in Scripture, the spirit of Christ, you'll find the spirit of Jesus Christ. There are about four texts where these different, these variations happen. Generally, it's you see the spirit of the Holy Spirit is the common word to choose, but you have some alternatives on a few occasions, and this is one of those occasions. So they wanted to go into Bithynia, the spirit of Jesus, that is the Holy Spirit, would not allow them. Passing by Mycenae, they went to Troas. Now, in Troas, they're going to meet Luke, and you're going to see how we know that here in just a minute, because you're going to see now for the first time, you're going to see the word we. So during the night, Paul had a vision in which a Macedonian man was standing and pleading with him, cross over to Macedonia and help us. After 
he had seen the vision, we, here's Luke, we immediately made efforts to go to set out for Macedonia. So they're in Troas, which is a coastal town, and now they have to cross the straits to get to go west, cross these straits to get to Macedonia, and that's where Philippi is. So, Paul, see, they're having some confusion here. Everywhere they try to go, they're not having any favor to go. They wind up in Troas. Paul has this vision, and this man speaking to them, interestingly, they would go, and the first person they're going to meet is not a man but a woman. But it was a man in the vision. And after he had seen the vision, we immediately made efforts to set out for Macedonia. And notice the next word, concluding. Concluding means that they all got together. In some way, Paul communicates his vision, and they all agreed. This was a community decision. We came together, and we agreed that we'd been called to go and evangelizo. That is uh, to preach the gospel. That's one word in Greek. Um, there's not, it's not separate words as it is in English. Evangelizo is to go and introduce the message of Jesus is Lord in Christ to this community. So it's interesting again to see they don't have commissioning agents specifically here, but they functioned in community. You see, Paul illustrates by how he lived, how we should live. We should always be seeking to live in community and under authority as much as possible. And even when we're doing that, we're still gonna make mistakes, just like Paul did. All right, let's talk some theology here. I want to talk a little bit about gradualism or incrementalism. Those are basically synonymous terms. So the Apostle Paul agreed with the unanimous conclusion of the First Church Council. Christian soteriology was Gentile inclusive and did not require circumcision or obedience to the Mosaic law. Salvation for both Jews and Gentiles was based on the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ with four stipulations. The Gentiles should abstain from pollution, things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from anything strangled, and, and from drinking blood. So those are the things they were, they were supposed to do. Now, in time, the Apostle Paul would come to disagree with this conclusion. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, he stated that there is one gospel based solely on the grace of Christ without stipulations. He said, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And as we have said before, no, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one we received, let him be accursed. His gospel is the grace of Christ, period. No human works. Now, obviously, he's talking about the entrance into the process. Once you have been born again, which is the sovereign work of the Spirit, which we do nothing to deserve or earn. We are regenerated. We are now in the process of salvation. Now you have the charge to be responsible to obey the commands of Christ and to grow and mature in Christ. So we do have activity, but that activity, that responsibility, the works that we do 
do not save us. They reveal that we are in the process of being saved. The sovereign work of sanctification is a work of the Holy Spirit in which we have some synergistic responsibilities. That's one of the mysteries of Christianity, exactly how that works out. But what is clear is the entrance into the process is regeneration, and that is the sovereign work of the Spirit. So in Galatians 2, Paul asserted that salvation was the process of sovereign grace. This was a modified version of the decision from the first church church council. Gentiles were saved, that is, entered into the process of salvation by the grace of Christ without circumcision, without obedience to the Mosaic law, and without the four stipulations of the council. Eventually, that is what Paul clarified. Now, notwithstanding the council's ruling, Paul vacillated in front of the Judaizers. You saw that when he was in Lystra. He vacillated, and he gave in. And sadly, Peter did that too. Peter vacillated in front of the Judaizers. These are Jews who want the stipulations on the Gentiles. But Paul here confronted Peter. This is Galatians 2. Peter had associates who he associated with Gentiles before the Judaizers arrived in Antioch. And then once they arrived, he separated and Paul called him on it. Notwithstanding withstanding Peter's response, Titus, a Greek, did not waver. In other words, Titus was there in Antioch too with Peter and watched Peter withdraw. Titus didn't waver. Titus refused to be circumcised. But not only was Peter inconsistent, Paul was as well. And we saw that on this journey where he circumcised Timothy. So both of them had issues. Both of them had problems. Clearly, there was confusion and inconsistency around the council's ruling, and it took time for these matters to get settled. There was an ebb and flow of things, but gradually the verdict of the first council of the ecclesia was amended and the stipulations were dropped. And so salvifically, Gentiles were included in the ecclesia without any additional requirements, period. And so that is the gospel we know of today, the gospel of the grace of Christ. The process of getting to an understanding of salvation solely based on the grace of Christ was gradual. It was incremental. And that's a picture of how many doctrines are. Many doctrines have been understood incrementally through gradual illumination by the Spirit to understand them more and more clearly and be able to articulate them better and better and then be able to live them more soundly. Now, let me give you a word of application. Gradualism for good or evil. Gradualism is the slow progressive movement from one idea to another. It can be used for good or evil. When it is used for good, it is progressive in the sense of enabling mankind to live more aligned with God. You understand progressive means progressively improving. The way progressively is commonly used today is incorrect. It refers to evil. It refers to becoming disconnected from God. It's really a, a euphemism that covers the real term, which is regressive. When we use gradualism to for evil, we are regressing in the sense that mankind is increasingly disconnected from alignment with God. So when you hear progressivism in the media or the culture today, just know they're lying to you. They should be saying regressing because that's what they're really doing.
Over the past 200 years, gradualism has been used regressively to increasingly disconnect society from Christian norms. We've seen it in education, economics, public policy, and now in social norms. Every aspect of society is being attacked by the spirit of Antichrist, trying to disconnect it from Scripture anywhere that the spirit of Antichrist can have success. Now, simultaneously, over the past 2,000 years, the Holy Spirit's been at work as well, using gradualism to progressively illuminate truth to the ecclesia. Gradualism was part of the foundation of the New Testament ecclesia. That's what you see in the first 15 chapters of the of the book of Acts. You see a progressive revelation of truth. What does it mean that Jesus is Lord in Christ? What does that mean? What is the word of God? What is the gospel? What is the message? It's gradually revealed. You know, one step after another, first in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the ends of the earth. So you see this, this gradualism was used throughout that period and has continued to be used through church history. When used for good, gradualism is a tool of alignment with God. Therefore, it is a tool of transformation. The first century, Ecclesia illustrated the value of gradualism to facilitate the transition from the old covenant to the new. This was a large paradigm shift that required time for the differences to be understood and adopted. The ruling about the doctrine of salvation issued by the First Church Council of the Ecclesia was an example of gradualism. There was a major soteriological question that needed to be resolved. The council did not fully resolve it, but made a step toward the resolution. Eventually, the matter was fully resolved. It probably took several, you know, maybe several at least years, if not a few decades, till it was really clear. And this illustrates how large paradigm shifts can be accomplished through multiple steps of gradual transformation over time. Sometimes these steps ebb and flow before they firmly facilitate the transformation intended. And perhaps one of the key lessons to gradualism for good is the importance of spiritual fathers and mothers in the process. Many times it is these mature, wise, godly men and women who help us see reality better, help us understand it more correctly, help us draw better conclusions and help us make wiser choices. So may we be wise and engage spiritual fathers and mothers. So Lord, grant us the grace to so, so do this so that we may live more aligned with you for your glory and for your honor in Jesus' name, amen.